Hey everyone at Church Central West, it's great to be with you as we continue your series Singing Lessons, looking through the book of Psalms to see if we can glean wisdom and help and inspiration and instruction for our worshipping, our praying and our relationships with God more generally as well. And I hope you don't mind, but I've been listening along with you guys as part of my intake of Bible teaching for my spiritual life uh, over the last few weeks and months. As you've explored these different songs, uh, I'm sure you know that, that that's what these psalms are. They are written as songs for God's people back in the Old Testament to sing. And so this bit of the Bible is really like a, a greatest hits or a Uh, a playlist, really, of the best songs from the Old Testament people of God. And it has been said that in this playlist, the book of Psalms, there is a song for every season. There's the uh, intimate, beautiful, romantic strings song, okay? Who have I in heaven but you? There's none that I desire above you. There's the minor key, more edgy and dark songs of doubt and questioning. Why do the nations rage against the Lord and against his anointed? And then there's the simple, repetitive, almost cheesy anthems that are deliberately written that way to be memorable, perhaps even with an eye on the kids to help teach the kids some of the truths about God. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. And you can hear all the kids around the dinner table in the Old Testament. His love endures forever. And then, of course, there's the songs with no chord pattern to follow, no sheet music to read that aren't pre-recorded. They are just guttural, tear-drenched, snot-soaked cries from people in their darkest place as they cry out to God. My tears are my food day and night. My bed is soaked with tears. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? And track 66 that you've just had read out to you, or Psalm 66, is another genre. Again, it is an exuberant, pumping, loud, confident, joy-filled, bold song of praise to God. The lyrics, when translated to English at least, have been peppered with exclamation marks to capture the tone. I think that's right. I think that's a helpful thing in our Bible to show us how this would have been sung. If it was recorded today, it would, I think, start with four clicks on the sticks and then go big with drums and lots of driving bass. It is full of instructions, if you heard that, to shout and to sing. And so I think there'd be loads of vocalists, maybe uh, a choir clapping along and joining in to raise a shout. And it's meant to be played, this song, very, very loud, turned up to 11. Uh, In fact, so loud that the lyrics repeatedly say that the whole world should be hearing this song. Psalm 66 is this exuberant, joyful song of praise and worship to God. And today as we listen to it, I want us to ask this question. How do we fan the flames of worship in our own lives so that we, whatever we're going through, however we feel day in, day out, can sing exuberant and joyful songs to God? How do we fan the flames of worship in our lives so that we can sing? exuberant and joyful songs to God as well. 
And I'm talking about big picture. So for the rest of your lifelong walk with Jesus, how can you bit by bit grow into a person who has a joyful, exuberant song of praise to God in your heart? But also much more practically and much more short term, I'm talking about literal individual moments where you're seeking God like a like a quiet time or tomorrow morning or at the prayer meetings this, this evening or in a breakout room on your cluster and you're praying and, and, and you're not quite feeling it and you feel a bit dry and you're not quite sure if you really love God that much that moment. How can you stoke the fires of worship? How can you get fuel for the fires of worship even in that little specific moment so that you can truly feel joy in God and sing out or speak out your love for him like the psalmist does here. How can we do that? How can we do that? And Psalm 66 shows us. You very simply, it's my one big point today, you look to God. You look to God. You focus on God. You call to mind God. You lift your eyes to God. You fix your eyes on God. It takes a decision. It takes an active choice. But you behold God. You fill your mind and your mouth and your ears and your heart with God. And then joyful praise flows as a response. That's what the psalmist does here. It's easy to write off this psalmist as just one of those people who seems to be joyful all the time and can be instantly ready at a moment's notice. The, the worship leaders barely picked up their guitar and they're in smiling and singing in tongues or whatever it is. But he isn't one of those people. The psalmist knows that he and God's people with all their sins and struggles need help to sing joyfully to the Lord. They need fuel for the fire. And so he gives them God in the psalm. He says 40 times throughout these 20 verses, he speaks of God. He uses his name, God or the Lord. And then if you add in the words that are about God, like a his or he, or when speaking to God, you or yours and words like that, then 19 of the 20 verses of this song are saturated with God, are drenched with God, are peppered with his goodness and his glory and his grace. It's like the psalmist is saying, you know what drives this pumping, exuberant, loud praise that we're singing here? It's not the bass guitar. It's not the drums. It's not us and our effort to stir something up. It's not us forcing something or pretending. No, it is God being saturated with God. And in this psalm, I think there are five things, five quick things that I can see that the psalmist particularly focuses on and draws to the people's attention about God that generate in him and those he's leading confident, loud worship. And these, I hope, can really practically help you when you're drawing near to God, when you're seeking to draw near to God, when you know you should, but you don't want to draw near to God. Then I hope that as you flood your mind with these five things, then your song will rise up as well. Here's the first thing that he draws their attention to. God's glory. Three times 
in just a few verses here, God's glory is praised. It speaks of the glory of his name, how glorious he is and how he is worthy of worldwide, international, global, glorious songs of praise. And God's glory is quite hard to define. I don't know if you've ever specifically tried to think, what does that actually mean? But in the Bible, I think the best way of summing it up is that it speaks of God's godness, his uh, difference to us, his radiance, his spotlessness. It's that if we were to peel back the heavens and come face to face with God, we would see he is glorious. He has glory. It's his, his radiance, his power, his holiness. It's how he's the most awesome being that there is. It's that he's the God who has angels circling around him and even each individual one of those creatures is so glorious that whenever anyone meets one of them in the Bible, they cower in terror because they are so radiant. But in heaven, those creatures themselves are covering their faces because God is that glorious. He's no small God, these verses say. He's the vast God of all the earth. He's no weak God. He is mighty and does mighty things. And he's not to be messed with. He's the one whose enemies will cringe before him when they see him as he is. God is glorious. How do you fan the flames of worship in your life? You don't just have to try and muster it up. Get the glorious God before your eyes. Meditate on who he is. The Lion of Judah roaring in power. And remember that the one you're worshipping is glorious. But that's not enough. Because uh, for Christians, at least, that's not enough because lots of religions can do that. Uh, Muslims can, can, can revere the, the awesomeness of the big God. But that's not enough. Because secondly, the psalmist shows them God's salvation. In verses five to six, say this. Come and see what our God has done. What awesome miracles he performs for people. He made a dry path through the Red Sea and his people went across on foot. There we rejoiced in him. You see now the attention shifts not from who God is but now to what he has done and very specifically to one event when the people of God were rescued from Egypt in the Exodus. And uh, the psalmists, all the way through the playlist of the book of Psalms, return over and over and over again to this event, when God's people were stuck, lost, trapped under horrific circumstances, unable to save themselves by their own efforts. And after a Passover lamb was killed to save them from judgment, God came down to act decisively and defeat their enemy, make a way for them to come through the waters that should really have signaled their death, but instead became in God's hands a path to new life. As on the other side, they're no longer slaves, but are now the liberated people of God heading for the promised land. And the psalmist wanting to lead God's people in joyful drums and bass, exuberant praise, reminds them that God saved them. Because just like we know today from uh, different situations around the, the world when people are saved or liberated or emancipated from different circumstances, we know that when people get saved, 
they sing. Even when football teams get saved from relegation, their fans sing. When you are heading for something that is not good, but you are rescued from it, you sing. We see it all around the world. And so to motivate and help God's people to have a joyful song in their mouths and in their hearts, he reminds them of the Exodus because when you're saved, you sing. But the Exodus isn't enough. Okay, a Jew can look back and rejoice in the Exodus. But as Christians flicking to the New Testament, we have a far greater salvation even than that to recall where we were stuck in a circumstance we couldn't get out of by our own efforts stuck in our slavery to sin lost and trapped and the son of God comes down and died as a Passover lamb to save us from judgment and God comes and defeats our twin enemies of sin and death and made a way for us now to come through the waters of baptism that symbolise a sort of death, but now because of Jesus become a path to new life where we cross through and on the other side, we are no longer slaves. We are the liberated people of God heading for the promised land. We have a far greater exodus, a far greater salvation. And when you know you're saved, you sing. If you're stuck tonight at the prayer meeting to get yourself going, or stuck tomorrow morning for reasons to be joyful before the Lord. Yes, remember his glory, who he is, the Lion of Judah. But also remember his salvation. That he is the Lamb who was slain to win your freedom. The third thing then that can help us is to remember and fix our eyes on God's faithfulness. And verses uh, 8 to 15, I won't read all of these, but they tell essentially the story of some very hard times for the people of God, how they went through tests and uh, trials and their faith was stretched and they were at the end of themselves and they were suffering and they had to go through a wilderness. But then alongside that, it testifies to the faithfulness of God within the trial, within the difficulty. It recalls how God never left them but walked with them even in the hardest days of their life. He walked with them. He held them in his hands and brought them through. Verse 12 sums it up really beautifully. We went through fire and flood, they sing, but you brought us to a place of great abundance. It's ironic, I think, that many of us feel that the hard things we go through are going to be the things that extinguish our song of joy before God and maybe some of you feel like you're in that place right now that the things going on in your world have taken your song from you and you you perhaps wonder will I honestly ever get my song back my joyful worship to God I, that doesn't feel like that's coming anytime soon I'm in the desert place but here's the thing the psalmist encourages us here that he doesn't think like that he sees our hardships as something to write into the exuberant, joyful praise song. He writes in the times of fire and flood because he knows that there's something in our experiences of God in times of trouble that doesn't silence our song, but births in us a deeper and louder and more joyful song of praise than we've ever known before. Because when we see that even in hardship, God is faithful. That it's not just words, 
that he truly is who he says he is, that his commitment to us is not fair weather, it's for all time, then deeper, louder praise bubbles up. It's why I love that song, The Goodness of God. It writes about the hard times and it doesn't exclude them from the song. It puts them in the song to drive the worship deeper and louder. It says, I love your voice. You have led me through the fire. In darkest night, you are close like no other. I've known you as a father. I've known you as a friend. I have lived in the goodness of God. All my life, you have been faithful. All my life you have been so, so good. With every breath that I am able, I will sing of the goodness of God. If your song is silenced right now, know that God is not done with you and your worship. He is writing something beautiful and profound to bring out of you again one day. And if you're dry and ain't really feeling it tonight at the prayer meeting or tomorrow morning, call to mind the faithfulness of God in hard times, how he has been faithful to you and brought you through. And then your song will bubble up again. We're running out of time, but two quick final things to help us to worship with joyful exuberance. Number four, remember God's kindness to us collectively. Most of this psalm uh, is spoken in the, the collective. It's written to uh, us or written about us or we. And it reminds God's people of the, the kind of corporate goodness of God, how he has blessed and, and helped their whole community or their whole nation. It speaks of shared memories of God's kindness, shared experiences of his grace, battles won together journeys undertaken alongside one another and I think that's a brilliant tool to get ourselves joyful in God is to remember and look around us in Church Central West and see the shared evidences of the goodness of God what he's done in your church over the last year five years what he's done in the lives of uh, of others around you in your cluster what he's done in you together as you've battled in prayer, as you've walked through this pandemic, the way he's shaped you and brought you deeper into prayer and closer in commitment with one another. The way he's raised up new leadership in your community, the way he's helping each and every one of you play your part, not to rely on some top figure, but all of us to play our part, to carry one another as the church in this moment because of some of the things that are going on. You look around and you see how he's leading you and how he's guiding you and growing you. And you let that be fuel for collective praise and worship. Call to mind God's kindness to us collectively and your gratitude will bubble up. But then lastly, it has to come and it can come even more deep and profound than that. Because you can remember God's kindness to me as an individual, to you as an individual. Verses 13 to 20, it, it switches. It's no longer in the we and the us. It's in the me and the I and the my. It goes from God's global glory and greatness to his kindness to the community, to his kindness to me as an individual. Just a few verses from that section. Verse 16, 
Come and listen, all you who fear God, and I will tell you what he did for me. For I cried out to him for help, praising him as I spoke. If I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. But God did listen. He paid attention to my prayer. Praise God, who did not ignore my prayer or withdraw his unfailing love from me. Beautiful words. There weren't only stories of what God had done for Israel. There were stories of what God had done for him. God wasn't just forgiver in general. He'd forgiven him. He wasn't just the God who is love. He's the God who loved him. Christopher Ash, speaking about these verses, gave a, a really profound challenge where he said, is that true of you? Can you sing the solo at the end of Psalm 66? Yes, you know God's good generally. Yes, he's been good to those around you. How has he been your good God? Can you sing the solo? I tell you what, if your worship life is dwindling, ask yourself, what has God done for me? Who has he been in my life? How can I testify to the goodness of God? And when you do that, when you let those memories come back to you, it fans the flames of worship. As the other psalmist says, you, you forget not all his benefits and you can be sure in that place that your song will arise again.